Well, hello there, everybody. Man, it's been a long time, but welcome back to the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. So glad you're back. So glad I'm back. It is your very inconsistent part-time podcast host, Ezra Lip here. Um, and I'm really excited. I, I'm going to try to keep it short today because we have a, an amazing guest the one and only Billy Martin of uh, Medeski Martin and Wood, but in, besides from being an incredible drummer and uh, and and member of this legendary band, he is also a label owner. He's a visual artist. He's a composer. He's a, a, a collaborator far and wide of, of musicians and artists. He's he's now the director of a legendary performing arts organization, Creative Music Studios which you'll hear us talk about. Uh, he's really, uh, he's a filmmaker, uh, very much a renaissance man, a very influential um, artist um, to myself. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention he's an incredible uh, teacher, which we'll also dive into as well. Um, but yes, Billy Martin, uh, the man, the myth, um, the legend, he's, he's here with us today. And I recorded this interview in February, so it's been a while that not... Uh, everything we talk about is going to be entirely current, um, but please forgive that. But anyway, happy to be back on the podcast, and thanks again for tuning in. Um, everything's going good with me. Thanks for asking. And um, without further ado, let's get right into it. Wait, hold on one more second. I would like to give a quick shout out to my good buddy, Mark, who uh, I know is a longtime listener, and I know this interview uh, was definitely on his uh, short list of of top guests he wanted me to have on the show so anyway mark i hope you enjoy this thanks for being a listener to the podcast i love you and uh all right without further ado uh please welcome the one and only billy martin yo yo how's it going great yeah it's great you know i got i stood up early and uh excited about many things so i don't know the energy i got a lot of positive energy i'm busy you know i've got like multiple things going on as i always do you know uh a solo i just got a really short solo ep record called disappearing which is really just a solo um record that i'm self-releasing in the next month or two it's just a uh, compilation of experimental solos drum solos uh basically reading into my this new artwork series that i'm doing calling it's called disappearing and um i'm going to be performing at the big years festival in knoxville in march so some people can check that out like live um playing to visual scores which the scores are just really just abstract paintings that i did so I'm excited about that because I'm kind of putting that together, like trying to get a release going. Nice. Very personal project called Disappearing, um, which is an ongoing thing, really. It's a visual and music, you know, series. The other thing is, you know, I'm, in, uh, I'm now like running this legendary organization called Creative Music Studio which was started in 1970, which was founded in around 1971 with uh, Carl Berger, Ornette Coleman, and Ingrid Sertso. It's like a music workshop uh, that was going on in the 70s up in Woodstock. 
And uh, it's really where a lot of incredible world music kind of started this collaborations with jazz, classical and world music. And a lot of legendary people, Don Cherry, you know, everybody, Anthony Braxton, you know, um, there's so many people, Pat Metheny, you know, Charlie uh, Hayden, you know, John, hey, John Cage, Buckminster Fuller, Alan Ginsberg. And, and what are you, what are you doing with this organization? I'm running it. Wow. I'm basically the president CEO, like Carl Berger has really been running it cause it's his thing. Uh, but now I'm sort of, they asked me to step in and kind of help sort of make it grow and spread the word and make connections to, to, you know, the younger generation. So it's really Steven Bernstein, Peter Applebaum and myself are their artistic directors, but I'm kind of stepped in more to manage, you know, and get things going. We're having a big benefit show in New York on February 6th. Um, a benefit for the creative music studio with, um, me, Medeski, Schofield, Bill Frizzell, uh, Nels Klein, Bernstein, Mark you know, Juliana, right? Mark yeah, Juliana. yeah. Yeah, I saw that. That looks that so, looks incredible. Yeah, so that'll be good and we're gonna raise some funds and you know, we have workshops coming up in the spring and it's just kind of exciting something I'm very proud and honored to be part of because it's a you know it's a lineage of like the most incredibly singular artistic uh musicians and artists that have been through that you know, whether they were teaching or students. And, uh, you know, it's really what I'm all about is, you know, finding my own voice and promoting that for other people um, to not compromise, you know, not, not compromise with your vision, you know, and that's really important. How, how did this come about where you got to be the president of this uh, distinguished organization? It's a, I don't know, it's a combination of things. Like I was working a little bit with Ornette Coleman uh, on a on this project called The Road to Jujuka, uh, which is was a benefit, another benefit for these Moroccan musicians, uh, the master musicians of Jujuka. And Ornette contributed something, and so I had spent some time with him, and then I would get invited to his birthday party. So. <laughs> I met Carl Berger there because he's very close with Ornette. He was, and but um, I also knew Carl through Camp MMW. We had a camp uh, for five years. Medeski Martin Wood had a camp up in the Catskills in New York State, and um, we had Carl up at one of the last ones with his wife Ingrid, and they taught a master class. And that was the first time I met him and kind of started to learn about CMS. And then after that, you know, they asked me to come up and teach a workshop, master class. And you know, I was just, it was really like a very refreshing experience being around Carl, being around the way they, the way they teach, the kind of people they bring in as sort of like, um, really, you know, um, fundamental way of teaching people how to play, you know, and to, and, and to encourage people not to, um, use any necessarily any like particular genre you know in their language just to kind of react to the sound and the very basic sort of training uh but it's also very high level of improvising so 
it was really along the lines of how I teach and it just kind of made sense. And we got, Carl and I got closer and we started working together more. I started playing with different ensembles of his. He has an improvisers ensemble, which is really like an orchestra. It's called the improvisers orchestra. And, uh, you know, you get to play with like some legendary people and then there's some students and we're all, you know, improvising together under Carl's direction. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, um, so, you know, over the years, I became more attracted to working with Carl and then he asked Stephen and I and Peter to be the artistic directors last year. And then we started getting more involved with the vision and the vision going forward of the creative music studio. And then uh, Carl wanted to step down and asked me to, to step in because, you know, from the experience I've had running my record label Amulet Records, you know, it's sort of like running a business. Uh, being an artist, being an artist-run business is really what the Creative Music Studio is about. It's a nonprofit, so uh, I'm learning about working as a nonprofit, which is really something I've wanted to do. So, what what exactly is CMS doing, like with musicians? Is it's a it's a school or the Creative Music Studio used to be a location in Woodstock, New York in the 70s and 80s, where people would come up for months at a time for workshop retreats. So people would come from all over the world and they would live and spend time with legendary musicians, for instance, Eddie Blackwell or Don Cherry or Nana Vesconcelos or Pat Metheny or Dave Holland or Jack DeJohnette or Anthony Braxton, or John Cage, or Allen Ginsberg. And this was something that was happening in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but in, by the mid-80s, they lost their property, and uh, it almost folded. So uh, now CMS is more of a, uh, a movable workshop uh, retreat. Uh, that takes place upstate New York uh, two times a year and in New York City. And we'll be also uh, starting some workshops in, in Philadelphia. But it's a nonprofit organization that, that basically brings people together to teach them to improvise and to develop their own way of making music. Can you, can you um, walk, walk me through a little bit? Uh how maybe Carl's Carl's method of teaching as you were talking about um is unique in that sense and and maybe like a little more specifically like what you know a, a first couple sessions might look like like getting people to improvise uh on high levels but non-genre specific and um yeah what 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 does this entail and 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 how does it relate to what how you teach and everything well, Carl, you know, Carl has his way of teaching and, and everybody else that comes to the creative music studio to teach has their own philosophy. There, there's no uh, one way of, you know, <clears throat> working with the students. But Carl's method, he has something called gamalataki, which is a sort of like his famous way of getting people involved with rhythm. And gamalataki is just basically like, you know, I think really coming out of East Indian sort of way of, you know, subdividing rhythm. And 
that's something you have to experience. I'm not an expert on gamma Lataki, <laughs> but okay. I, I think it's very basic. It's sort of like gamma la is three and Taki is two. And almost every rhythm is broken up into odd and evens. And so he will just have people, uh, he'll give people a very simple mode or, uh, if they're, ha if they play a melodic instrument, uh, he'll get them playing sort of, you know, a very simple sort of rhythmic pattern. And then from there he gets everybody to sort of improvise and start to kind of play together. But really, I mean, even more essential and fundamental is just literally, you know, the first thing he does is he gets everybody in a room and gets everybody singing a note from using their voice. And he asks everybody to just start with no reference to any key or pitch. Everybody just starts, they hold a note and you can have, you know, 20, 25 people in a room usually just holding a note, no matter what key you're in. And it's, it's an incredible experience because he asks you to hold the note, whether you think it's right or wrong to not adjust it and just to kind of hold it. And what happens is you're hearing pure sound and sort of a kind of a improvised harmony, you know, that just instantaneously with a group of people that are just singing a note. And it's the mo that was the most profound experience I had actually at the CMS the first time he did that because it sounded like the most beautiful choral music I'd ever heard. You know, it sounded like, you know, you know, beautifully sophisticated, you know, like on an orchestral choral level. Uh, you know, his wife also works with vocal techniques. Um, Carl has, you know, he does a conduction, which is sort of like he'll get people to play by giving them hand signals, uh, bringing them up in volume, bringing them down. I mean, it's really simple. It's just really just about getting people to just start to make sound. And from making the sound, other people have to listen and react to that sound. And he guides you gently through it. And, you know, pretty soon everybody is, you know, making music together and, uh, Sometimes it has a groove, sometimes it's more open, uh, rhythmically experimental. Um, but it's pretty simple and I don't think it, ha it should be explained too much because, you know, then we're going to get lost in all these words. Right. Sure. Um, but he has something called music mind practice, which is really like everyday practice and it's very simple. And it has a lot to do with just really just making sound and and it doesn't matter what where you start. Uh, one of his famous quotes is, it's not what you play, it's how you play. That's probably the most effective, you know, philosophy coming from Carl. It's not what you play, it's how you play. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely relate to that good yeah um i'm curious uh about your 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 roots as um as a teacher which um i've i've you know i i know a fair amount about your background as far as you know how how you got into music and various influences and, and you know somewhat can kind of trace a trajectory of, of your career because you've you know you've written about it and done interviews and stuff and 
I'm I'm a you know I'm a big fan, but um I I I don't know too much about like when and how you got into teaching. Um, I'm curious if you want to speak about that as well as maybe um, how that has evolved for you over the years um, as far as techniques or your relation to it. Seems like some something you're really passionate about now. So I'm curious about yeah, that. Yeah, very, very passionate about it. Although I'm I will never claim to be a master teacher. Or you, you know, I'm I'm just as much of a student as I am a teacher. Uh, you know, look when I was you know young and I was probably in, in high school or at just out of high school, you know, I already had whatever, you know, like maybe eight years, six or eight years of, you know, studying with other drum teachers and, you know, uh, maybe in the, in the early eighties, I was, you know, teaching some younger kids, uh, how to play and, you know, use the drumsticks and, and it was painful and really hard to do. And, uh, I thought that I could do it, you know, and I realized that it was, um, so difficult to, to teach. Uh, and the reason why and I look back now is because I didn't really have my own personal experience with, you know, I didn't have enough experience as a professional, as a musician, not a professional experience as an artist experience playing with other people. And, you know, I needed more time, you know to discover who I was about. So it really wasn't until, you know, maybe the first five or 10 years with Modesky Martin Wood that I started to develop a concept on a rhythmic concept and sort of, you know, where I was really making a contribution and learning a lot from was West and Central African uh, rhythm. Uh, and all of those, you know, Pan-African styles, you know, that's really, as a drummer, where a lot of my rhythmic strength lies in is really coming from West and Central Africa, Brazilian music, Afro-Cuban music, New Orleans, New York City, you know, the hip hop, you know, all these things. So that's when I started to work on this book called Rhythm, R-I-D-D-I-M, uh, claves of African origin. And I created this graphic notation, a very simple way to read a rhythm without having to understand Western notation. And that was the beginning of really creating a, a found a rhythmic foundation, a way to teach and a, a new perspective, my own perspective, my own way of sharing how people can play more than one pattern at one time and develop their independence and what I call rhythmic harmony. And I, yeah, uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm curious about that notation because I think it's super effective and I've, I've used it with students and it's something people usually, you know, pick up right away. It's, I'll just, for the listeners, it's basically just like X's and, 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 uh, and dots and, uh, you know, an X, an even, an even pulse of, of notes, eighth notes or whatever. Uh, and then an X is where you would play and a dot is the space between. So depending on where the X's are, it's where you play. And depending on where the dots are in between is, is the space you leave and you can kind of carve out rhythms of that. Um, is that, is that something you kind of, um, came across yourself or had you seen that? Well, I came across it in a book, an anthropology book about, 
about African culture. And one of the chapters was, you know, focusing on the music of different African countries and cultures. And the author, not being a musician or writing in Western notation, was just typing in, you know, words, explaining what a particular musician was doing at a particular time in this caption of this photo. This, this, this guy from Northern Africa was, was playing a, you could see him playing, tapping on a bottle and singing. And so the author was describing what, what was happening and his way of describing the, the pattern that the guy was playing was by typing X's and dots. And that was a, an epiphany for me that made me realize this is a way to communicate to a broader audience you know, how to understand that the rhythmic pattern that someone was playing. So after I saw that, I got right to really just creating pages and pages and all kinds of lists of different patterns, rhythmic patterns, you know, most what I call claves, which is key in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And those patterns are really just like a, you know, rhythmic structure, you know, a rhythmic key to certain types of phrases that really you know some of them are really common that we and other ones are more elaborate but that's the beginning you know of like understanding you know how this rhythm would work also the reason why i like this graphic notation is because it's inclusive everyone yeah. can understand it you know yep. um, in a simple way it's a closer to a more fundamental simple way of understanding something by looking at it without hearing it ultimately these this music, a lot of these rhythms are really been passed down orally by watching and listening. So it's one little step closer to an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's working. People really get it. And I think that it gives them a little flexibility to also, uh, I guess, to internalize what the rhythm feels like to them. If you play the rhythm and you see the X's and dots, you're still not sure maybe what time signature it's in. And that's good because that makes you feel a pulse that's your own. Uh, and then within the book, I eventually expose multiple pulses you can be feeling. Uh, so that's something that I think is really important. Uh, if you look at just a Western notation method book, rhythm method book, you're going to see a time signature and you're going to think four, four, six, eight or something like that. And that automatically tells you intellectually that you should be thinking, you should be counting in six, you should be counting in four. But with this culture of Pan-African rhythm and understanding that language, it's not about hearing it in one time signature. It's just feeling the pattern for what it is and then feeling the, the your perspective depends on where you're at in the music. So you could be hearing something in four or in three at the same time. That's what's beautiful about this, you know. Do you uh, do you encourage um, vocalization when working with these rhythms? Why not? I mean, you can use your voice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I ask because because I feel like that that has been um, for me like pretty key to internalizing some of the rhythms. Um, I was working with with your book a lot. Uh, I mean, I've I've had it for, you know, pretty much since it came out. But I was working, uh, kind of, in depth with it a lot last year, 
for a few months and um i noticed that a lot of i could play you know the stuff i was working on and then but when i started uh <laughs> it, it was a whole other skill to be able to subtract the part from uh, my limb, like stop playing, you know, so you got three or four things happening. If I took away one limb and then instead of playing the rhythm, tried to sing it in conjunction with the other parts, it was like a whole, you know, other layer of, of difficulty. Um, so but I, I practiced that and I would I would kind of go back and forth um, singing the rhythm while playing it, you know, say, uh, and, th and then taking taking my hand away and just continuing the singing and then trying to switch the parts I was singing and the parts I was playing. And I feel like that when I was able to do that and kind of sing and play every part, I felt like, OK, I, I got this, you know. Yeah. Um, well, that's and, good. Yeah. That's your, I mean, I, I encourage everybody to find their own personal way of getting into it. And, you know, if it's, if it requires vocalizing by all means, you know, I mean, basically when you think about the drummers who want to, you know, uh, be able to play two or more rhythms, you know, have that independence, people call it independence. I call it rhythmic harmony to be able to say more things with, you know, your body, you have four limbs hopefully, uh, that you can use, but really you can do a lot with just two limbs. You can make a lot of music with one limb, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, uh, if you have two or three or four, then you've got a more, you got a lot more complexity. Uh, and if you have a voice, you're adding a fifth actually. So when I, when I, when I talk to people about using their hands and their feet, when they play, I, their voices actually. I do use that term, like you're, you know, you're voicing the, the patterns and the counterparts. But yeah, to use your voices, like I think, you're more and more uh, essential. Uh, a voice is a very uh, important thing to incorporate, and if it whatever works, it really comes down to whatever works for each individual. Uh, and when they go through my book, there's not just one way to learn, uh, it's not one, you know, particular rule or system, how to learn these patterns. I, and I really do encourage people to experiment and find different ways. So what was that, your, what was your process like of, uh, of internalizing that stuff? I know you worked with lots of teachers. I know you've listened to a lot of music. Um, but did you have a point in your life where you were you know, sitting down for a certain amount of hours every day and, and working on this stuff? Like, what, what, what did your, you know, developmental period of, of drumming look like? Well, the book is a result. The, the book is an output of what I had really developed, you know, by uh, studying, listening, and playing music. And the book is sort of an example of how I want to present it in a way that people could sort of teach themselves. So it's a very different process. Uh, and when I created the book, when the book was published, of course, I opened it up and started going through it and kind of, you know, start to go through some things that might have been challenging for me, which there were, you know. Uh, so, 
you know, that that's an ongoing process of just kind of like, you know, opening the book up when I'm teaching someone, I might want to play something for them. Uh, and, you know, there's, like I said, there's many ways to do that. The process was really writing down the single note, single lines first, what I call claves, into groups. So each chapter starts with a family of claves. I call them a family. It's a group of claves, usually, you know, like 10 or 11 single line patterns. And then, then as the, as the book, as then go on to the next page, you start to add a pulse and then you start adding another one. And then all of a sudden you have three or four different things going on at the same time. It's counterpoint. Um, so, you know, it was really, it was really about just kind of breaking down rhythm and, you know, also it also came, it's all about the, the roots of <clears throat> West and Central African rhythm, you know, and how those, you know, patterns, you know, how they, where they exist in other cultures and, you know, it's a little bit of a lesson in that too. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's really comes down to this. It's, it's developing a rhythmic vocabulary. And this particular book explores the West and Central African influence rhythms. And, uh, you could spend a lifetime, you know, uh, developing this, um, and using it for your performance and for working with other bandmates and also composing. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question the way you want me to answer it, but I had to say that. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really valuable. Um, I, I guess, um, I guess I was, I was curious about, um, maybe not specifically relating to the, the, uh, the content and rhythm, but, um, kind of like your most developmental period as a drummer when you were coming up. Uh, I'm assuming in, in the eighties, um, was, was when this would be happening and, you know, you were kind of in the height of, of studying and I know you were at the drummers collective and, and, um, doing a lot of Brazilian music, but, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering like, what were the, uh, what was the process of taking, you know, your, your, uh, raw musical abilities and kind of refining them into becoming the artist that you would develop into and that you're, you know, still developing and evolving, obviously, but, you know, um, when you were starting out with MMW or, or even before that, like what, what that period looked like. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's a process, like you said, it's, it's, it's ongoing. There's no, you know, I can't define a particular, you know, height of, you know, <laughs> you know, education or, I figured something out. It's, it's like every day, every week, every month, every year, there's things that sort of start to develop. And you just break it down simply. It's just really the more experience you have playing with other people, the more you learn how to play, how to speak. And you're developing your vocabulary, you know. And when I say vocabulary, I mean, you know, your musical vocabulary, uh, your way of communicating with sound and rhythm and harmony and everything uh and i think that just the more that i played and experimented and was open to different 
different styles of music, the more I was getting, you know, the more I was learning. Uh, and, you know, with, uh, when I met with, you know, Medeski and Wood, you know, we were all in that, we were very ripe for this kind of, this kind of uh, understanding and growth and, you know, being open to, you know, just any means of expression, you know, uh, and not just exploring one particular genre, one particular thing. And we would get stuck and, you know, I would get stuck into like, oh, I guess I should play when we play jazz, it should sound like jazz. And that was wrong. You know, it's like, that's really the spirit of jazz. Isn't like one particular era of jazz. It's a, it's a living, breathing thing. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, in the eighties, you know, uh, was the beginning for me of discovering who I was. I mean, because it had a lot to do with, uh, being part of the downtown music scene, which really was started for me at the, the original knitting factory, which most people don't even know <laughs> was on Houston street for a couple of years. And it was a very small place and there was a lot of radical experimenting going on. And it was a very tight knit sort of, well, not tight knit. It was a, it was a community of people who were really experimenting and it was almost anti-commercial and it was just like a, people from all walks of life, just really, experimenting and improvising and and also conceptualizing and and uh for me that was i knew it was my home as soon as i started to be part of that and i was you know asked to play in bands and things i started i, I started to realize that i had to go deeper and i had to really express you know more personal you know ideas uh for good or worse and you know i went through that and i'm still going through it um, so I think it was really about being around people who ac accepted the individual for who they were and, you know, really liked this sort of radical approach to, you know, what is, how do we express ourselves? And, and th those things were, you know, really resonated with me. Uh, and I started I started really, I really started working on my soloing in the, in the, I would say in the mid nineties, I really started to dig deep into just solo performance, like, you know, alone and recording myself and on the drum set and on any instrument I could get my hands on, whether it was a keyboard percussion or wood blocks, metal, you know, uh, piano, you know, stringed instruments, anything, but really mostly it was getting deeper into the percussion because I, I realized how limited I was. Uh, and not until I really started from scratch again, uh, trying to create something in the moment in a improvised solo, that's where the music came out in a pure way. And then that's where things like black elk speaks that record. Mm -hmm. I released that record. That was my first real, probably the most personal solo record that I ever released. I can go on and on about that. But, um, I, I also wanted to kind of go back to your question about education because, uh, and teaching, because I didn't get past the rhythm book and the rhythmic training sure. and the rhythmic vocabulary. Because when I, when I started teaching, out of my book, Rhythm, I really had something 
a strong personal approach to, you know, working with, with drummers now. And then eventually it became just multi-instrumentalists or other instruments, but really drummers. And in those lessons, I realized in those early stages of those lessons, that was probably around the late, you know, just the turn of the millennium, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, I was teaching and I was using my book and I realized that like that was only one side, uh, the rhythmic sort of concept, the rhythmic training that I really needed to find a way to teach people how to improvise. And, uh, that all came from the solo and, you know, getting people to be comfortable with, you know, just soloing and what does that mean? What is improvising and how do you teach improvising? How do you, how do you practice improvising? And that developed in the lesson, and that's a really crucial, really, it's just the other side of the, of the balance of being a musician is to understand how to create something that's your own, you know. So, so that developed, you know, right around the time the book came out. And then I started getting more into how to teach improvisation. Do you, do you mind sharing some of uh, those concepts? With, yeah, well, with... the, yeah, so... You know, so those concepts developed in 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 the early stages of teaching out of my book. So the concept for me is before I even before I even uh, introduce the book or the concept of rhythmic, you know, study. Uh, we start with the solo and what is a solo, and so um, we talk about it. I explain, you know, that that's the first thing you everybody needs to do when they're uh practicing is to perform a solo for themselves uh in in whether it's alone or you know on stage but it's really about practicing a solo and the solo is an improvised solo it's not written it's not preconceived that you have to just start playing and you have to really just be in the moment and and spontaneously compose something uh and not to uh, reference any other music, uh, just let things come out of you, whether they feel good or bad, you just got to get it out. And you're just really just shaping a, a short piece of music on your instrument. So if it's the drum set, then you're just playing a drum solo, but you know there's so much that you can do, but you don't realize it until you start exploring how can you play a solo. And each time you play a solo, every the second time you play the solo, the third time you play it, whether it's in succession or every day you play it one solo, they have to be different. They have to be completely different. You never return to what you did the day before or the time before, you know, and exploring that. So that's one thing. The solo is really the most open and probably the most <laughs> difficult thing for people to grasp because it's so open-ended. Uh, but I get into another concept called string of phrases and string of phrases is really just playing, uh, <clears throat> letting something come out, like playing a phrase, a really quick phrase, uh, not doesn't have to be fast, but just something that comes out in the moment. So, you know, you could just play something like, you know, you know, that could be your first phrase, but it's a short sort of statement that you make. And then you, you uh, you stop and you don't play and you let silence sort of just leave some silence in between 
space in between the next phrase. And the next phrase might be ba dum ba ba ba. And then the third one might be ba, you know, you know, there's, it just goes on and on and on. Each phrase has to contrast the next. And it's all improvised. So this, this is really important because it's, the string of phrases is really giving you some bar, you know, some, some, some basic rules, which is play something, improvise something, a short phrase, and you have to leave space between that phrase and the next one. So it's a string of short phrases. Each one has to contrast the next. That's kind of the general rule. And you can go on and do that for five minutes or an hour or whatever. Uh, and it's basically pushing yourself, you know, to sort of explore how many different ways you can make sound. And, you know, is it rhythmic? Is it not rhythmic? Is it tonal? Is it a long tone? Is it soft? Is it loud? You know, you're learning how to speak. You're learning how to articulate a short phrase. And it can be very abstract. And the more you explore that and experiment with like an abstract sort of phrase, like it, you could literally throw the drumsticks down on the, on, the, on, the, on the snare and let them bounce and listen to that. <laughs> and then pick them up again and drop them on the tom-tom and listen to that. I mean, you really don't have to have technique, uh, a good technique to do this. It's really more about controlling what you're, when you're going to say something. Then you can sort of focus on how, you, you know, what, how you're saying it. And you start to kind of get into different techniques and different ways to make sound. And it becomes fun, you know, but it also becomes very challenging because you're constantly pushing yourself outside of your own self. And you're intentionally, it's, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're intentionally like not developing these ideas because you're, each phrase you're contrasting it with the previous one. So you're not, you're never really giving yourself a chance to, to kind of develop a concept in a way that you would. Is that, is that right? Well, I wouldn't say that because it's the whole thing is developmental. The whole this whole concept is a way to develop your voc to you know to develop a vocabulary. It's you don't repeat a phrase. You're just working on the creating of a phrase, uh, the spontaneous sort of moment of just letting something come out. Uh, you can examine it later, whether you have a good memory or not you can record yourself and listen back. I think the most important part of a developmental part is listening to what you just did. So you can record yourself doing this. And then by listening back, you're, you're learning, you're hearing it, you know, from a different perspective, then you can do whatever you want with it. You can repeat it later, but this exercise string of phrases is about not repeating anything. You know, the initial string of phrases exercise is about improvising every little phrase. When we speak, when I speak to you and you speak, we're having a conversation and I have to leave space in between my phrases for you to understand, maybe to, you know, contemplate what I said. It helps people understand when you articulate a phrase with you have space in between each phrase. And then when you speak, that's something unpredictable that I, I can't predict what you're going to say. So 
we have to go back and forth and we need to really listen to each other, leave space for each other. And that's what you're doing in this string of phrases solo, but you're doing it alone. You're saying something and then you're listening to this silence and sort of maybe even reflecting on what you just played. And then you're going to play something else. In order to play something else, you have to understand what you played before it. I don't want to get too intellectual about it because it's really a very simple concept. And uh, everybody is going to have their own personal way of developing. Um, but it's, it's, it really is a development. It's, it's to help you develop your vocabulary. It's to help you to discover things. It's to help push you into areas that you normally wouldn't be pushed into. Uh, you have to really push yourself uh, and explore every possible way of making sound and saying something with sound without playing some cliche thing that you've learned. Sure. Yeah. And, and how do you feel like uh, you've seen great results from students doing this stuff? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, some people get it right away and other people struggle with it. Some people don't. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a way to sort of like compose. I mean, I think we do it, you know, when people sit down and they or stand up, whatever it is, you know, start making sound with an instrument or with their voice. You know, sometimes you're just in that moment where you're just exploring what it is to sing a note or to, you know, put your hand down on the piano or to pluck a string or to make something vibrate. And it's really goes back to the ascent, you know, the, the beginning of like when you first heard sound or heard an instrument make sound, that wonder, that amazement that something could make such beautiful sound. Uh, and how does it do that? And if you can be in that headspace more, you can really start to develop a compositional, you know, uh, experience, you know, um, cause a composer doesn't, in my world, a true artist, the true composer that is an original doesn't listen to other people's music and write their piece of music based and write something based on what they heard. You know, a real vis visionary artist works with their more personal vocabulary and they start exploring things that happen by chance, by accident, by improvising. Mm. You know, when you, when you understand your instrument and you're comfortable with it, you just start you don't question it. You just let the music come out. It's the same thing with speaking. Like, you know, who writes out in advance what they're going to say in the conversation? You know, you just kind of are reacting to the moment. You're, you're just letting stuff come out of your mouth and making, putting these words together. And you're not really that aware of how you're doing it or not really sure what you're going to say. Sometimes you might be sure what you're going to say and it doesn't come out quite the way. It's always different. We're improvising when we speak. So we ha I think we have to think about when we speak, uh, you know, and when we, when we just have a conversation that to realize that that is improvising. And the more you express your personal self, your personal ideas and feelings, 
and you're and you're really exposing you're exposing that part of yourself. That's when you're really getting somewhere. And that's the same thing as when you play your instrument, whether it's a string of phrases or a solo. It all comes from the same idea: communicating, experimenting. And I I feel like that also is what is going to resonate the most with people when you're really uh, expressing your unique self. I, I know for me, like that's kind of what I, you know, I'm attracted to in musicians when it authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, I don't think there's anything more rewarding than creating something that's yours. You know, I, I think I, I can't think of anything more life affirming than that contributing something to the world that is really unique in your own way. Uh, it may be a, be a variation on something that somebody's done, but still you find your way of doing it, you know? Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, I imagine when you started Medeski Martin and Wood, these were kind of shared concepts that you guys had with each other. Oh Yeah. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were, I mean, I think one of the things that brought us together was that we were tired of playing other people's music mm. and we were tired of being sidemen in other people's bands with their vision. We, we came together and we really unanimously felt that like, you know, let's create something together. Let's do something that's ours and we're not bossing each other around. We're having a conversation. We're improvising together. And we're going to sort of develop that way. What people call jamming, you know, improvising in that way. And did it from the get-go and did this dynamic retain that it felt a full full democracy? Yeah, I mean, democracies are more, uh, much more difficult to maintain than... Uh, dictatorship oh sure um, yeah it's much more work so you know you go through periods of feeling like you're you know serving someone else's idea too much than yours and you have to kind of be generous and selfless uh so there you can't get that without having a real sense of family uh obligation and love for each other in a way and a respect, you know, you can't do it without the highest respect and regard for each other. So that was there. We were very much admired each other individually, you know, as a group. And that really is what kept us in line, kept us from being selfish or, you know, whatever, quitting the band or forcing some ideas, you know, I mean, there was, there were ideas that came in and out. Some of them worked, some of them didn't, you know, and we had to be open to listen to each other's ideas. So at the beginning, it may have started a little bit more like, okay, well, we just want someone to tell us what to do. And other times it was like, everybody had their opinion and we started to figure it out very quickly. And then, you know, over the years, you can hear our records, you can hear our performances, you can hear how things evolve and devolve. And, you know, uh, it's a process. Were there times when it felt particularly challenging as a band? 
the challenges to me are always that when when we're starting to feel like we've done this before, you know, we're playing the same thing, we're playing the same way, right? Uh, getting comfortable with sort of like playing show after show and sort of there's a little bit maybe more of a complacent kind of like thing. That's the worst, you know. That's the that's the that was always our enemy, you know. Mm-hmm. We always wanted to be on edge and like kind of. In, in a way that was actually a comfortable edge, you know, something where like, wow, you know, <laughs> that was a great solo. I never heard you play that way. Mm. You know, like those kind of moments where we compliment each other and we're really trying to step out is the most rewarding thing. But the, the worst is when you're like, man, it's just same old thing, you know, like what's going on, you know, what do we do to get out of this rut, you know, this hole, you know. So what, what do you do or what did you do or have you done? Well, I mean, usually, I mean, whether it's on stage, someone breaks out and just kind of has a, you know, has their own sort of, uh, way of breaking out of it. And then that inspires the other ones. Other times it's sort of a strategy, like, you know, you know, just kind of like, let's never play the same set of music again and let's never play the, the song exactly the same. You know, that's a certain kind of rules. Uh, and even though we do, there are some tunes that cannot be really played differently. They have to be sort of played a certain way. Another, a lot of these tunes that we have created together are sort of like very simple, you know, hook riffs or something. It may just be based on the drum beat, you know. So I'm the one who has to play the same drum beat each time. And those guys get to sort of you know, be improvised more or vice versa. You know, there's a certain melody and harmony that has to happen, but I can change up the rhythm. Uh, I heard a show, uh, I don't know what year it was, maybe early 2000s, but it was like you guys said you were going to, it was the last time you were going to play Bubble House. Is that, would that fall into that category of a reason why you'd retire that song? Yeah, well, I don't think we've retired. I think we played it before. You, you did play it. Yeah, I think we played it recently, actually. Okay. Um, with Schofield, okay. Jam Cruise, uh, but yeah, there are, there are times when we say that and we 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 mean it, but um, then there's sort of another kind of spirit that comes in, which is sort of, you know, like peppering in things that can you know give the show variety. You know, like if you're improvising a lot of the set and then you play Bubble House, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. If you have John Schofield as a guest and he's yeah. not used to playing that song, then it's going to be different. And to to be honest, Bubble House, like as simple as it is, and the riff is the same. It the the way we bring the tempo up and down, and certain things are a little bit different each time, or sometimes a lot different. But yeah, we that we've we've said yeah, there are certain things we're so sick of playing, and we're just we can't do it. It's, as much as some people want to hear it, it's their favorite song and most popular thing. It's hard for us to really be sincere. And when we're not feeling sincere, we just can't do it. Sure. Yeah. So why, um, I noticed you guys haven't been touring as much, um, for a little while, a few years at least. Um, was that what was the uh, thought behind that? Oh, it's just just life. I mean, you know, uh, 
we've been playing together for tw over 25 years, 26 something years now. So I think, you know, it was a certain point where we were getting overworked. Uh, I have always been really careful about the burnout factor mm -hmm. and not wanting to burn out because it's such a good thing. So I was kind of the always like warning, you know, Hey, let's be, you know, like, let's not burn out, you know, yeah, you're out on the road a lot. You know, I was the first to have kids and a family and, you know, I wanted to be home a little bit more and I couldn't, uh, yeah. and I went through that stage where not until they started having kids and settling down or whatever, having a home <laughs> that they started to realize, yeah, maybe we do need to take some time you know, uh, and not only that, but also take time to do other things, you know, that, that only add to our, you know, musical vocabulary to bring back into the band. So, you know, there, there was always that, that was always up for discussion, like, you know, Hey, let's take a break. Let's, let's try to pace ourselves. This is a little bit too much, um, getting burnt out, you know, and, you know, around the time that, you know, Chris Wood and his brother started playing together. That was a period where John and I wanted to take longer time off. And Chris sort of filled that time in with his brother and started playing with the Wood brothers and developing that. And he was basically like, you know, seemed to be ripe to explore some other avenue which he wasn't, he wasn't doing that. You know, John and I had many other projects going on over the years, but Chris always had pretty much was just doing Modesky Martin Wood uh, and not really stepping out much outside of that. And so I think, you know, that, that combination of uh, it was ripe for him, finally found something that he really felt was fulfilling, connecting with his brother. Mm -hmm. a very different sort of music sure, yeah. and um you know and that was so then he started getting busy and for john and i we were okay with it because that gave us time to kind of do other things and take a break from modesty martin wood and then that then the wood brothers thing came you know more of like you know more of a <laughs> building as a as a band that was growing and more touring and i was totally happy with that you know, I was fine. I I did. I didn't really want to tour this that much with MMW, but then it became even, you know, it's a situation where we all got so busy doing other things that we could barely schedule in a Modesto Martin Wood tour. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, to be honest, you know, I've, I've always been trying to get off the road. And so I'm at this point now I'm very comfortable with not touring very much at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when I do, it's a very short period. It might be five days. This we just did a week, you know, in Florida. But that that's it. You know, we'll have a few gigs here, a few gigs there, and I'm really happy with that. I have a lot of things going on here. Yeah. Uh, and 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 we'll always. I I know we'll always play as a band. You know, it's not like it's we're we're not slowing down because we don't like each other. We love each other very much, and we we have a great chemistry that's still really powerful, you know, which actually is, you know, we have, we have a new record. We, we've been, we recorded a, a lot of music and we're going to be working on 
mixing a record soon. And it's incredible. It's like really probably going to be the best thing ever. Nice. Uh, and so that feels really good and satisfying. So, you know, there's, it's just like, you know, when we play, it's great. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things in our lives that we need to do. And I think that only adds to the band's output when we have these other experiences and we come back together and it's refreshing. I wanted um, to ask you about uh, something in your book, Wandering, um, which which is a great book. I, I, I really love it. Um, Thank you. For those. Uh, so so Billy wrote this great book, Wandering. Uh, it's kind of. I don't know. I guess I would describe it as uh, essays or, or different chapters on on different aspects of of your life, um, and you know, there's stuff about teaching. There's stuff about your early influences. There's stuff about different experiences you've had in your life, like working with the master drummers of Jujuku Jujuka. Um, but there, there's one there's one passage um, that that stuck with me. Um, and you were describing a time, I guess, around the recession, uh, the financial recession around 2009, and saying uh, you you were struggling with depression and you um, were finding it challenging to bring an in income and feeling pressure because it was hard to support your family at that time. And, and then eventually you would describe how taking some walks through the woods um, as opposed to running on a track and listening to podcasts or music would kind of, there'd be some salvation there and that, that audio visual experience. Um, but I'm, I'm curious and it was really beautiful. Um, but I'm curious the, the larger, uh, backstory of, of what was going on and, and how you kind of got out of that time and, and, uh, you know, were able to overcome that, that those feelings of depression and, financial hardship yeah well i mean you know there's a there's many reasons uh you know there's there's not one way to get to, to, to end up depressed um you know sometimes it's just you don't feel useful uh you don't feel like you're serving a purpose um other times it's just a strange chemical imbalance uh that is really almost unexplainable. Uh, other times, you know, it's just, yeah, that the shame of not being able to feel like you're not able to provide for your family, uh, you know, all those things and also not realizing your potential. Uh, and I think all those things were kind of like playing with my head at the time. Uh, and I was, you know, that when that, happened i had to you know search deeper into what the hell am i here for what the hell is, am i going to do now kind of feeling um and you know that particular essay describes sort of really the it's really the theme of the book wandering uh this sort of idea of aimlessly wandering and waiting to waiting for some kind of message from somewhere uh, was really for me what happened on these walks and on these sort of solitude. These you know these sort of like putting myself in solitude in a way 
which for some people could be very dangerous because you're disconnecting, you know. Uh, but I was connecting with uh, uh, an inner, my inner self in a way. Uh, I was connecting with nature. I was connecting with, you know, kind of a, a higher sort of maybe spiritual, you know, plane of like, what, you know, why am I so depressed? Why is it all, this is all about me. And it's just, you know, folding in on itself. And you kind of have to pull yourself away from the news, from domestic things. And I think when you go for these, if you can get out, go for a walk in nature somewhere and realize, oh, there's the sky, there's the sun, there's, you know, whatever, trees, stones, birds, water, air, uh, you start to kind of maybe connect in a way and you realize, man, I'm not really that important. And like my problems, <laughs> they're kind of a joke and like, but this is a positive thing is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. And you start to realize that it's all just such a trivial, you know, the depression aspect of being depressed. And if you can sort of let go of a lot of these attachments you have to the shame and the, you know, what's your purpose and all that and just be okay with the fact that you know life can can be kind of just a big joke and meaningless <laughs> uh but it can also have a lot of very deep meaning and and you know finding that inner inner self come out you know uh it's just difficult for me to put in words but um I think I started to things things started to surface, you know, when I was alone and I was starting to hear my thoughts and hear the bad and the good things, letting it all come out and um and starting to take action on these really vision visionary sort of moments I had when I was, you know, on a hike or alone. Um and by all means, you don't have to be hiking in the woods, you could be walking down the street, you know, or walking for an hour or hours or all day with nowhere to go. And that's what I recommend is that sort of wandering kind of concept of like, give yourself, give yourself time to do nothing, you know, and if you're walking, it's better because it's healthier. <laughs> uh, and then things will come to you, you know, uh, and some of those things might be a significant sort of little uh, cell of an idea. And all of a sudden, uh, you just you have this, these little ideas and you have to sort of store them away, put them somewhere, let them accumulate or, or take action. And, you know, that's that's how things started to unfold for me. And I started to feel like I had a new lease on life. You know, everything else did its thing. The universe does its thing, you know. Uh, so you really don't have to do anything at all. But um, for me, it felt really good to have these things come out. And so, you know, whether it's uh an idea for a movie or an idea for a new set of, you know, compositions, uh, a new direction in visual art, you know, new ideas on how to perform, uh, to, uh, interact with my family, to be a better person. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that 
is helping to shed any more insight into that it, article. No, it is. It is. Um, absolutely. You talked also in your book about um, the idea as music as magic and um, beat making as, as, a, as a form of sorcery. And um, do you mind do you mind elaborating on that? Because I think that's really fascinating, and I feel that way. But I'd love to hear you articulate in like on a deep level, like what that looks like or feels like for you. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what's what's interesting about music is that it's extremely powerful. You know, when you hear music and you reflect on it, uh, it does something usually to you. Um, and of course, when it resonates with you, uh, it's that more powerful. And there's no really, there's no real way of understanding how that works. I mean, you can take a pill or smoke a joint or go for a hike and have an effect. And sometimes you can't explain exactly why it's doing that either. But Music to me, it's such, it's so, you know, it's like, it's a movable sort of temporary thing. It's there and then it's gone. You know, it's just you, it's, it's vibrating in the air and you hear it. And then all of a sudden it could change the way you, you know, think or go about your life that day. Uh, and that to me is like magic, you know, um, the whole idea of sorcery and, you know, this was kind of my play, you know, sorcery, beat making is sorcery was kind of my just kind of putting more weight on how powerful, you know, uh, it is to create uh, a rhythmic uh, vocabulary and sort of express yourself rhythmically. Um, and, you know, it's really kind of like alchemy, you know, in the sense you can you can pick apart music in any way uh and say there's there's sound there's you know tone and there's rhythm you know and then there's you know those things you can break them apart you can break the beat making part into that um and wait, you know, wait i'm gonna i'm gonna interrupt real quick what what's what's the difference between sound and tone well the sound sound would be like the timbre i guess Sound is sound, and when when I when you start to think about tone, you start to think about relative sort of pitch. Okay. Uh, right. You know, so to me, sound is sort of like it's beyond like tone is to me is more of a musical. Yeah, uh, you know, a musical Relating tone to the to the uh, sound is not a musical term. Yeah, sound is sound. Tone nice. is a little bit more specific. So. And you can break all these things down, you know, timbre and all those things. But yeah, I'm thinking more about pitch and harmony with tone. Yeah, yeah. And sound is more of just like the overall what, you know, sound is the essential thing. The tone and the rhythm is sort of like falls under sound. Uh, so how you arrange notes, tonal, you know, notes. Uh, you know, whether they're together or they're separate and then how you arrange rhythm, whether those are together or separate. And, um, when it comes to beat making, I think it's really, you know, incredible when you can just literally play a pattern. Uh, it could be a single line pattern or you could combine it with another 
pulse and someone just going to get up and start dancing. Yeah. And it's, you know, that to me is the sorcery part. It's like alchemy, you know, you're taking two, two different patterns and putting them together and creating this magic, you know, and then of course, when you're adding more rhythms, you know, uh, like in the rhythm book, you know, you've got this sort of very sophisticated means of expression and that's the sorcery part it's like it's really you're the you're the maker you know uh and it's up to you to sort of like find these experiment with these different elements and put them together and come up with your own music and how powerful is that yeah that's sorcery you know that's that's alchemy it's creativity yeah do you feel like um well, when I was in my adolescence, uh, in high school, college aged, there were a few bands, um, Modesky, Martin and Wood definitely being one of them that I felt like, um, I, I, I experienced some, some magic on, uh, in, and had, would, could go to these concerts and, and have a kind of transcendent, uh, you know, transformative spiritual experience really um often uh and and i unfortunately i you know <laughs> since that time i feel like it happens less and less and i don't know if that's just a product of i don't know what that's product of but um when you were younger do you feel like there were um bands or artists or, or concerts that you saw that you would experience that same level of of uh transformation yeah, it's all personal. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah, I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot of music that just, you know, changed my life, you know, like right away, as soon as I heard it. Uh, and then maybe when I started hanging out more with it, it was less of a surprise. Mm. Um, and then sort of understanding the language and how it's used. And uh, so, and I think it also has a lot to do with, you know, how you evolve as, you know, a listener and how you receive the information and what you do with it. It has a lot to do with it. It's like, are you aware of what's going on or what what part of this performance are you listening to or focusing on? Are you distracted by other things, you know? Um, and is it really, really worth anything in the moment, you know? And there's those things change all the time. So, um, you know, when you're younger, you're experiencing things, a lot of things for the first time. So, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of very powerful, getting a lot of power, getting a lot of information, but how you process it. And I think when you get older, actually, you know, you, you have more wisdom, uh, uh, and you realize that some things are just not as powerful as they were because they're just not anymore. Uh, they lost their power. Um, but then there's always something else out there. And I think part of getting older and wiser, uh, is being open to those experience, a new experience. You know, I think some people out of fear close off, they hold on to the, to the old times. And then that becomes sort of like, almost like an incestuous sort of, sort of behavior that, um, you start fearing the new things. Uh, but I think that the wisest and the most interesting people 
particularly artists that I admire a lot, have always been open to new ideas and looking towards the younger generation and seeing what is special about what's coming and not criticizing it. Uh, of course, there's plenty to criticize all the time. I don't think there's ever been a time in history where there hasn't been some stupid shit that's created for you know some reason that is senseless. It's usually a commercial sort of a you know commercial idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, so when so you know, when you start thinking about music and categories in music, really categories in music were really only created to sell music. And that was created by really by businesses, not by musicians. Uh, the real musicians don't ever talk about what style of music they're playing. They just play, uh, you know, uh, but, but the business people and the music industry and the commercial world wants to be able to sort of categorize and segregate stuff so that they can sort of manage it in a way to sell it, you know? Um, so that's when things become stupid and, you know, so there, you know, there's always those experiences we have where we realize this is just regurgitated something that was done before, whether it's a cover band or, and believe me, these things serve their purpose. Look, when you go to a wedding and you want to hear celebrate or you want to hear, you know, whatever, uh, Michael Jackson or, which is all great bands and, music was great it serves a purpose but if you don't go beyond that if you don't start to express new ideas then you're going to be in this sort of depressing feedback <laughs> so um you know um it's important as you get older to, to remain open and like a child to have that childlike hearing something for the first time being open to you know, uh, it, being open to watching a, a movie that you're not sure about or listening to certain music or to, to search for something new and to be open to it. That's when you're going to have those experiences that you had when you're at that concert or when you were younger and you like got, your, you know, you got blown away and it changed your life. Those, ex those things can happen. And that, that's why I, you know, that's why I really think it's important to be a creative person in your life, no matter what you do, whether you're a musician or not, is that to be able to experiment and have fun with the creative ideas enables you to be, to make magic, to be able to like not have to go to a concert to get that thing. You could get it right there where you are. You know, and then every once in a while you go to a concert or you go to the museum or you go to church or wherever or you go on a walk and you get some kind of some vision comes to you and you're. It changes your life, you know, it's healing. So if you're creative. You know, and you have that creative power and you exercise it. Then you're always going to have a new experience. It may not happen every day, every minute. But it's going to happen. It's work. That's the other thing is people have to realize that going to a concert or listening to music or checking out other things, it's work. <laughs> and it's not always rewarding, you know, but eventually you're going to get somewhere. You have to keep working at it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think that's I think that's a, a good place to wrap up. 
Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for your time and sharing all your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ezra. Thanks for, you know, sharing the hopefully something worthwhile. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I feel like you are a, uh, you're, you're a, you're a natural born teacher. <laughs> Thank you. Because, <laughs> because, I'm because I feel, I feel like I, uh, you know, was trying to, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I feel like you like have, have a tendency to, 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 yeah. Like, you know, if, if, if I'm asking, something about your life you you can you can answer it but but also simultaneously like kind of turn it around and shed light on on all the listeners and be like hey but it's not really about me like this this applies to everyone and and this is what you can get out of it and i i think that's that's a cool attribute to your personality so thank you uh, so much that's the best compliment yeah that's what it's all about you know it's about you know uh yeah it's about that you know, yeah. I, I want people to, <laughs> to use, use any of this and, and improve their lives. Yeah. But yeah. it takes work. I think it's good that we ended up on that. And it's all about the work, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's not just like, you know, paying for something and you're going to, you have, you have to pay for it in a way that is work. You have to really dig in deeper. Yeah. You know. Totally. Totally. I try to work at it every day. And I know yeah. you do too. With, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good to talk to you, man. Good to talk to you too. Thanks so much again. And there you have it. Billy Martin. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you, Billy, again so much for coming on the show. I, I so sincerely appreciate it. And thank all of you uh, for tuning in. I'm not really sure the future of the podcast right now. Um, as you notice, it's been a while. I've been involved in lots of different projects, um, completing the record with my band Magic and the Other. Last time I checked in, uh, we were in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign, which um, was successful, and we recorded the album, and it's uh, going, getting sent to the vinyl pressing manufacturing uh, company this week, so that's all really exciting, and got uh that's all cruising along so um yeah i really i really like doing the podcast and i'm hoping to find time for the future but i i can't be consistent um in, with any sort of uh guarantee of um a schedule at the moment this may change at some point but anyway i just appreciate having the avenue to do it when uh when i can do it and i appreciate you guys checking in when you're able to check in so uh let's keep it going um, keep sharing it. Keep sent writing your reviews and ratings on iTunes. That definitely helps. Um, helps motivate me and helps uh, other people um, enjoy the podcast as well. In the meantime, um, I hope everyone's doing good out there. And uh, yeah, take care. Uh, talk to you next time. All right. Thanks so much.